You know, there's a, a three-letter word uh, that we just love to hear about all the time. What is that three-letter word? Sin. My guess is you woke up this morning and you thought, man, I really hope that John preaches about sin because it's going to make me feel good and I just can't wait to hear about it. No, actually, that's not how we are, is it? We don't love to hear about sin. It's convicting. It's humbling. It uh, challenges us. But the Bible talks about sin a lot, and so if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we must talk about sin. By way of a reminder, we're in a four-part series that I've entitled God's Great Story, looking at the story of redemption, the meta-narrative of the Bible, how it all fits together. Last week, we looked at Act 1, Creation, how God made everything out of nothing. He spoke, and everything came into being. You see, we're tempted to have a small view of God, but creation reminds us just how big he is, and we saw that God is great, and he's powerful, and that he's good. Well, today we come to Act 2, Genesis chapter 3, the fall. If you have your Bible, you can find the text, Genesis chapter 3, or the Pew Bible in front of you. It's found on page 2. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to take that Bible with you. Uh, We have more. We'll replace it. That's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Or if you can find the text printed in your bulletin insert, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. Before I read the text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Gracious God, you've told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Speak, Lord. For your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were made, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God remains forever. One of the largest freshwater turtles is called the alligator snapping turtle. It's found primarily in the southeastern part of the United States, uh, and these creatures are massive. They can grow in excess of 250 pounds. They eat fish, but they have been known on occasion to even uh, eat small alligators. It's not the type of creature you want to come in contact with. And these alligator snapping turtles rely on a uniquely deceitful method in order to forage for fish. You see, what they do is they lie completely still on the bottom of a lake or a river, and they open their mouth wide. And God made them in such a way that at the end of their tongue is an appendage that's pink that looks almost exactly like a worm. And what the alligator snapping turtle does is it lays there with its mouth open, and it wiggles its tongue, and this appendage starts to float in the water and looks like a worm. Convinced of that, fish come by and come ready to get their snack, only to then be chomped by the alligator snapping turtle and become his snack or lunch or whatever it might be. You know, sin is a lot like that alligator snapping turtle, is it not? It entices us with what looks good. And before we know it, we're locked in the jaws of temptation. We've fallen into sin, and the rest is history. That's really what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of mankind into sin is a tragic story of deceit, rebellion, and the consequences that come as a result. As we walk through this text, I want us to see that there are several lessons that we can learn about temptation and sin. And the first lesson that we find here is that sin deceives us. Look at how the passage begins in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You know, this text isn't explicit. It doesn't tell us who this serpent is, but the rest of Scripture helps us. We find out that this is Satan, the great enemy of God and the enemy of God's people and of all humanity, really. This great enemy shows up in the form of a snake. And notice that the text says the serpent was Crafty is more crafty. This word can also mean cunning and deceptive. We see later that when the snake is punished, it will crawl on its belly. So somehow this is some kind of walking snake. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a frightening thought. Did the snake have legs? I don't know. How did it move about somehow without going on its belly? 
Uh, so this talking snake shows up and begins to talk to Eve. And the craftiness and deceitfulness is immediately shown when the snake opens its big mouth. The end of verse 1, it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Don't miss the fact that Satan goes to Eve rather than Adam. The text tells us Adam's there, but Satan in his sneaky ways doesn't go to the primary person you would think that he would go to. He goes to Eve. He kind of bypasses Adam and In doing so, he's showing just that he doesn't play fair. He's dirty. The phrasing of his question and the use of the negative is intentionally confusing. He's trying to plant seeds of doubt into Eve's mind. Well, Eve responds in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, this is fascinating. In response to that sick, twisted question that Satan is asking, Eve responds with the Word of God, except it isn't. If you have your Bible, look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What do we see here in this original command that God gives about the tree? Well, there's no mention of the prohibition of touching it. So somehow this has been added. Did Adam add it? I don't know where it came from. But God doesn't say you can't touch it. He says you can't eat of it. More importantly, God's command emphasizes all the trees that they can eat from. But Eve is kind of talking about this one that she can't eat from. Also, God says that you will surely die. In the Hebrew, the word die there is repeated twice. It's dying, you will die, or you will die, die. You're really going to die. But Eve says that, you know, we will, lest you die. She's downplaying the consequences of sin. Why does all this matter? Well, where was Eve when this original command was given? She wasn't even created yet. And so what we see is that Adam fails to pass along the word of God given to him to his wife. He doesn't speak up in this situation. He's there passively just watching and letting Eve have this conversation with a talking snake. And he hasn't done his wife any favors. He hasn't actually taught the word of God as it was given to him. And she's emphasizing the wrong part. She's looking at what God has forbidden rather than all the blessings that God has given them. That's kind of how sin works for us. We think, oh, there's this one thing we can't do, but oh, it seems so good. God, I'd be be so happy if I could just do this instead of seeing all the blessings that God has given us. Well, Satan then says in verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In some ways, he knows God's word better than Eve does. He says, you will not surely die. He's quoting God exactly where Eve is lacking in her understanding of God's word. It says, you will not surely die, but God knows your eyes will be open. You know good and evil. Are the words of Satan here true or false? A trick question is both. Is it right that their eyes would be open, that they would know good and evil? Yes. But did it mean that they would become like God? No. 
That's part of the deceitfulness of sin and temptation. They're half-truths. And so we begin to think, well, maybe there's, maybe that's right. Then in verse 6, we see that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree for, was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. And so she ate, and she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It makes me think of, towards the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes... And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It seems that John is picking up from this language in Genesis 3. What Eve saw is so good. He's saying, look, watch out for that. That's not the way that God's people are to go. Well, let's sum this all up. The deceitfulness found in the temptation and sin is really two main lies. First, Satan convinces Adam and Eve that God doesn't have their best in mind. He's basically saying, look, y'all, God is depriving you of this one tree. And, you know, can can you really trust him? Does he really have your best in mind? I mean, what kind of God would withhold this great thing from you? What else is he withholding from you if he's going to take this away? Can you actually trust him? Secondly, Satan offers the promise of wisdom. But it's not good wisdom. It's autonomous wisdom. It's wisdom without God. He's basically saying, you're better off without him. You should do things your way. Follow me. And as a result, Adam and Eve kind of basically say, you know what? Step aside, God. We know better than you. I know your word forbids such and such and commands me to do this and such, but I don't like that. We can say the same things if we're not careful. Well, as a result, Satan gets Eve to focus on the wrong person. Instead of focusing on God, she focuses on Eve. She's focused on herself, and she looks inward rather than upward at God. You know, temptation and sin are really the same today. At the root of it are these same two deceptions. Does God really love me? Teenagers, you might be tempted to think, you know, if if God really loved me and he cared for me, then why would he withhold this from me? Why would he not let me do these things that I want to do that seem so fun and all my friends are doing? What kind of God would withhold that from me? It's the deceit that says, God made me this way, which we can use to justify anger, gluttony, workaholism, or any form of sexual perversion, really any sin. God made me this way, it's just who I am. Except he didn't. If Satan and the forces of evil can get us to doubt God's goodness, we are infinitely more prone to temptation. But remember what we saw last week in creation, God really is good. Temptation and sin are deceptive. The story is told of a man who went hunting. Now, this is uh, obviously a fictitious story, as you'll see in just a minute. But the man goes hunting, and as he raised his gun, pointed at a bear, the bear began to speak to him and said, can't we talk about this like two sober human beings? The hunter lowered his gun. What's there to talk about, he asked. Well, for instance, the bear said, coming closer, what do you want to shoot me for? Simple, the hunter said, I want a fur coat. All I want is a good breakfast, smiled the bear. I'm sure that we can sit down and work out an agreement. And so after a while, they sat down and worked out an agreement. Well, a little bit later, the bear stands up all alone. 
They had reached a compromise. The bear had secured his breakfast, and the hunter had on his fur coat from inside the bear. It's a silly story, but sin is like that bear. It promises us a way that we can coexist. Yes, you can follow God, but you can also have some of this over here. It's okay. God loves you. He'll forgive you. It doesn't matter. But it doesn't work that way. Friends, sin overpromises and underdelivers. It overpromises and underdelivers. What seems so good in the moment leaves you crushed with guilt and shame. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It's deceptive. How are you deceived by temptation and sin? What lies are you prone to believe? How do you undermine the goodness of God by seeking autonomous wisdom? Sin deceives us. The second lesson about sin we see here in Genesis 3 is that sin explains what is wrong with the world. Remember, we're looking at the whole Bible as a story. And the story starts so well. God spoke. He made the world perfect. He created Adam and Eve in his image. He put them in the Garden of Eden. Everything's going great. And all of a sudden, boom, it comes to a screeching halt. With the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, everything is messed up. Adam and Eve recognized this very quickly. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan promised that they would be like God. But now that their eyes are open, their innocence is gone, and they realize that it wasn't what they thought. And now they are ashamed. They try to cover themselves up. And then they try to hide. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Now I want us to stop here for a minute. How are we to understand this? From the rest of the Bible, we know that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do, so how is it described that God is walking in the cool of the day? There's a couple of different ways we can understand this. First is that this could be kind of uh, an analogy of sorts. It's what theologians call an anthropomorphism. It's using human language and attributing it to God so that we can better understand who he is. The second option is that the Hebrew here can also be translated that they heard the sound of the voice of God going forth in the garden. And the third option is that this could be a theophany, that God took on human form like the angel of the Lord, as we see in various Old Testament texts where it shows up and the people bow down and worship. It is God in human form, a pre-incarnate Christ. Well, which one is it here? The text doesn't tell us. And I think all three options are viable. I'm prone to hold to number two, that it's the sound of the voice of the Lord going forth. But no matter how you understand this, the point is still the same. Adam and Eve experienced the presence of God, and now they're terrified. And they want to get away as fast as they can. In other words, sin damages our relationship with God. It separates us from Him. Instead of having that perfect fellowship, We now are scared of him. Sin also damages our relationship with others. We see this in Adam and Eve's interaction. Before the fall, they're naked and they're unashamed, but now they're ashamed. They're they're covering themselves. And the brokenness in human relationships is seen as you begin to read through the book of Genesis. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, one brother kills the other. And from there, it just gets worse and worse. 
We see this every day. Husbands and wives get into fights. Siblings argue with one another. Bosses treat their employees unfairly. Neighbors get into arguments. You name it, there's broken relationships in our lives. On top of that, our relationship with ourselves is broken because of sin. We're not content with our appearance. We struggle with anxiety and depression. We love ourselves more than we should. Why? Because of sin. Now, does this mean that all mental health issues are sinful? No. But they are a result of life in a broken, fallen, sinful world. We don't function as we were originally created. And finally, our relationship with creation is broken. We don't take care of the world as we should. Disease runs rampant. Natural disasters occur more frequently than we can even keep up with. Why? Sin and life in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Now, we've talked about all this, but what is the connection between the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of us or us today? Well, in our first reading, we found out. First verse of that, Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is what we call original sin. Adam was our representative. And when he represented us in the garden, when he sinned, we all sinned. Now you could say that's not fair, but that's how God designed it. And God gets to call the shots, because he's God. And so as a result, we're all born with a sin nature. That's why you don't have to teach children to hit, or to fight, or to lie. If you aren't sure about original sin, come to my house this afternoon just for 30 minutes and watch my two little boys interact. You'll see that there is sin even in a two-year-old and a four-year-old. We're all born into sin. So we sin because we are sinners. This sin nature plagues every single person born into this world except for Jesus. You know, it's tempting to look out in the world and say, the problem is out there. It's those people. It's people who do these bad things. The people who believe differently than me. It's this or that, this disease, that sickness. But Genesis 3 is reminding us the biggest problem is actually within us. It's our own sin. Back in 1960, Adolf Eichmann was captured in Argentina and brought to Israel to stand trial. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Nazi army and was one of the main orchestrators behind the Holocaust. In order to prove Eichmann guilty, eyewitnesses were needed to testify in court. And one of those was a man named Yehiel Denur. He was a Jew who survived the atrocities of Auschwitz. Upon arrival of the courtroom, in the courtroom, Denur beheld Eichmann for the first time in years. Immediately he fell to the ground and began to weep uncontrollably. Naturally, the courtroom kind of turned into a sense of pandemonium, and people were going crazy. The, the judge had to bang his gavel relentlessly to restore order in the court. After the trial, Denur gave an interview to 60 Minutes, and he was asked, what was the reason for your tears? Was it anger? Was it hatred? Was it fear? He said it was none of those. He said, rather, he realized that Eichmann wasn't a monster or a godlike army officer like he had once believed. He simply was a man. Denur said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable too to do this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. That's scary. It's profound. 
But it's consistent with Genesis 3 and Romans 5 that this sin nature is in each and every one of our hearts. And unless God intervenes, we are capable of far worse than we ever would admit. Do you realize that sin is your biggest problem? Do you realize that it's the biggest problem for your children and for your grandchildren? You think it's the biggest problem in the world? You see, if we miss this, we're going to look for the wrong solution. If we think a lack of knowledge is the problem, then education will be the solution. If we think a lack of resources is the problem, money and experience will be the solution. But if sin is the problem, we'll look to God for a God-given solution. Sin deceives us, explains what's wrong with the world, and lastly, it brings life-altering consequences. We've already seen part of this in the fact that Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken. They hid from God. They're ashamed. They make excuses. Adam, why did you do this? Well, the woman that you gave me, she tempted me. God, it's her fault and it's your fault. That's problematic. Eve, why did you do this? Well, the serpent, he tempted me. But even in this, and they're hiding and they're blame shifting, God comes and he finds them. He came to seek and to save them. He asked them questions. Where are you? Could he not find them? No, of course he knew exactly where they were. Did you eat of this tree? Was he unsure what they'd done? No, he knew. He's drawing them out and he's drawing them to himself. He's giving them a chance to repent. Yet even through this, there's consequences. We see these consequences in verses 14 through 19. The curses that come as a result of their sin. First, Satan is cursed and snakes with that. Then there are consequences for Eve. Childbearing will now be infinitely more painful. And the mothers here today can assert to that. Yes, that's true. Childbirth is very painful. Additionally, it says a wife's desire will be for her husband. This doesn't mean that she's going to be attracted to him. It means that she's going to desire the God-given responsibility as the leader in the home that God has established for the husband. Adam is told that the ground is cursed and that work will be much harder. Notice that work in and of itself isn't part of the curse. No, work is good. But work is now harder because of the curse. I want to point out that neither Adam nor Eve are cursed here. Only Satan is the person who's cursed. Certain parts of their life are cursed, but they themselves are not cursed. Why does that matter? It's a sign of God's grace and compassion to them. They have just made a royal mess of everything, and God doesn't curse them, yet there are still consequences. I think we need to notice that. The next consequence is that Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. See that in verses 22 and 23. And this is a form of punishment. They no longer enjoy the blessings of Eden, but yet even this is part of God's grace to them. He says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever We've got to do something. God knows that in this state of sin and misery, if they were to eat the tree of, the, of life, they would live forever in that state of sin. And God says, it's actually more loving for me to remove you so that you don't do that and bring yourself an eternal state of death and sin. The final consequence is death itself. We see that in verse 19 where God says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The promise was eternal life if they obeyed, but they disobeyed and so death came. Friends, the same is true for you and me. The reason anyone dies is sin. 
Not necessarily their own sin. It could be somebody else's sin, or it's just life in a broken, fallen, sinful world. Death was not originally part of how God made the world, but now it's natural. The mortality rate is the same it's always been after the fall, 100%. But even worse than physical death is spiritual death. Because of sin, every person is born under the wrath and curse of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin is death, eternal separation from God and hell. It's not the message we like to hear. It doesn't give us the warm fuzzies. Certainly not a message the world would want to hear. But it's the message of the Bible. And we have to hear it. But friends, the story doesn't end with sin. God could have just wiped out Adam and Eve and said, done with you, I'm starting over. But he didn't. Even here in Genesis 3, we find a promise of hope. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to Satan. He's saying there's going to be a conflict between your descendants and the woman's descendants. Not physical lineage, but spiritual descendants. One of Eve's spiritual descendants will bruise the head of Satan, will give Satan a mortal death blow. Who is that? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is the one sent to do battle with the serpent. And guess what? That battle has occurred. Where? The cross. You see, Satan thought he won when Jesus died and he was put in the tomb. But that wasn't the end of the story. No, three days later, he rose again in triumphant victory, defeating death, hell, sin, and defeating Satan. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus won. So friends, rest in what Jesus has done. Why does all this matter? Why do we need to talk about sin? Because it shows us our need for Jesus. In your bulletin, I put in there a little diagram that I think is helpful. You'll find it in there. You can look at that. It's on one side, you see an awareness of God's holiness. On the other side, there's an awareness of our sinfulness. And as those grow, what happens? The cross gets bigger. You see, if you think of yourself as not that bad and God is not that holy, then you don't really have much need for Jesus. But if you see that God is infinitely holy and you are wicked, then the cross is that much greater because the cross takes care of your greatest need and my greatest need. Praise Jesus for the cross. Friends, that's good news. If you don't know Christ, come to him today. Trust in him. And if you do, find hope in his forgiveness. Own your sin for what it is. Confess it and walk in that forgiveness that Jesus offers. Let us pray.